Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 and find verses 1 through 10 where we'll focus our attention this morning. Our culture often calls it Easter. The Bible calls it a resurrection. What do you call it? Is it a fairy tale? Or is it your only hope? Is this a life-changing story that we read, or is it tradition passed down through the ages from ancient texts? You see, how you understand the resurrection we celebrate today determines how you understand and relate to God. So I'm thrilled that you're here, and I'm excited to look into the beauty and the majesty and the terror and the fear and the wonder of this story that we'll consider together. It's the best story ever told. It doesn't need an introduction, but it does need some context. The resurrection we celebrate on the first day of every week is not a standalone event. The good news we hear and celebrate on Resurrection Sunday that He is not here, for He is risen, as He said, is not something that just happened. It followed the bad news. It followed the terrible news. It followed the horror of the cross that we celebrated on what we call Good Friday. The reality that we're sinners and that our sin was so bad that we needed a Savior, one who would willingly take our place and die in our stead that we might be saved. The good news of God is the answer to the bad news of man. The good news of resurrection Sunday is the answer to the hard news of Good Friday, that your sin and my sin earned our death. And the bad news is well told by the cross, while the good news is well told by an empty tomb. So please stand with me and read with me the wonder of what God has done as we honor the Word of God. Matthew chapter 28, we'll read verses 1 through 10. Matthew 28, begin in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said to them, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray. Our Father, we seek to worship you this morning. Your word gives us overwhelming Realities that should bring forth true worship from us. But our hearts are 
distracted and divided. So help us. Do what you deserve. Help us do what we need to understand by your grace through the faith you give us the beauty of this story. The heartache of what our Savior endured that he might be found victorious and our life might be found in him. Help us. We need it. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. Jesus was publicly crucified. His death was professionally verified and armed guards assigned to his tomb to guard it. Jesus was dead. His body was left to rot. His memory, the powerful of Israel and Rome, assumed would dissipate as his body decayed. But then what happened? As the angel announces, he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. He was dead, and then he wasn't. His resurrection vindicated him in the law courts of heaven and enabled him to uh, take away the devil's right to be the accuser in heaven and the terror on earth. Remember, Jesus was never a victim. He was always the victor. The power displayed and absolute conquest achieved in Christ's passion and his death was no different from what he accomplished at his tomb. When Satan thought he was victorious over Jesus in his death, Christ was in fact taking control. When the forces of evil and darkness thought they were putting Christ to shame, Jesus was in fact putting them to shame. He was leading a victory parade. Jesus' death was not defeat. It was preparation for celebration. If you've been studying Colossians chapter 2 with us, you'll remember that Colossians 2 has a lot to say about Jesus' victory on the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15 remind us, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's all of us, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Where was that at? The cross. Jesus put the rulers to open shame when they thought, we'll put this guy at the crossroads on top of this bald mountaintop for all to see him crucified. They thought they put Jesus to open shame, but they were the ones who were full of shame. And it all comes to head to a head at the resurrection. And just as all the four Gospels tell us uniquely from their perspective the reality of how Jesus was crucified, they all give us their unique perspective and nuance from how he was risen, but they all share the exact same perfect divine truth. And in Matthew's gospel, we see an emphasis really on how humanity responds to the resurrection of Christ. So I'm not sure what Easter is about to you and your family. I'm sure you have traditions. I'm sure it's fun. I hope it's special. But we need to narrow in on what Easter is about according to the Bible this morning. And what we see in the Bible is that Easter, it's about an abandoned and bloody cross, an empty tomb, and an occupied throne. When we understand what Resurrection Sunday accomplished, we realize we simply can't live without it. So how will you respond to the risen Christ? How will you respond to the one who died for your sins and is risen that you might have life? 
Our passage, passage gives us some options. We're going to see three sets of responses in verses 1 to 4. We're going to focus primarily on the response of the soldiers. Their response of fear and rejection and deception. Verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So it's Sunday morning. As the sun is coming up, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, how would you like that to be your name? The other Mary. But anyway, the other Mary, they go to see the tomb. See, it's the day after Sabbath. Sabbath meant they couldn't work. They couldn't travel to the tomb. They couldn't walk that far. They couldn't go to the market and get spices. They were homebound for the day, in essence. And so these women, once the Sabbath is over, they go to Jesus' body. They're going to spice his body. Uh, This would have uh, not only been disobedience to the law if they went earlier, but it would have been a dishonor to Christ that they couldn't go earlier. But since Jesus was on the cross from 9 a.m. Friday until late afternoon, on Friday around 3 p.m., he comes off of of, of the cross dead, and from 3 p.m. until that evening when, when darkness came, they would have prepared the body, but that wasn't enough time to do what they desired, to give him the honor that he deserved. And so from dusk on Friday night till dusk on Saturday night at Sabbath, to these godly women, as soon as it's light, they're ready to go. They've honored God by waiting to honor his son. And though they're confused about what they would find, they had the right motives The right heart, they were godly women. And as light from the east begins to come over the Mount of Olives and filter down into the Kidron Valley and come up the side of the eastern side of Jerusalem, as soon as they were able, they went to work. They went to see the tomb. They went to where they left the dead body of Jesus. They went to the tomb to find a dead body. And behold, Matthew says, behold. This is one of Matthew's favorite words. If you remember studying Mark, Mark's gospel had a favorite word. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Matthew's favorite words, behold, 62 times. He's saying, behold, behold. Look at this. This is amazing. Check this out. What's amazing, Matthew? What are we so excited about, Matthew? Behold, there was a great earthquake. There was a great earthquake. Now, I've lived in Kansas, and I felt our earthquakes. Those are not great earthquakes. I lived in California. I felt one of their earthquakes. You may not like California, but they got some good earthquakes. I mean, it was different. This was a great earthquake. This shook everybody, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. The earthquake was not a little shimmy that caused everyone to wonder, what was that? No, this was the earth shaking, and everybody knew the earth was shaking. The earth shook. And there in the early dawn hours, as these sleepy travelers who were getting ready to go back from their pilgrimage to the Passover in Jerusalem, back to their homes all throughout Israel and the known world, as they were rubbing the sleep out of their eyes, God shakes the earth. They would have wondered what was happening because the last time God shook the earth, what happened? Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died at the crucifixion, the earth shook. And now the earth shakes again. So they woke up to God shaking the earth. It's like God grabbed the snow globe like a kid, gave it a shake. Pay attention, Matthew says. You can't ignore what's about to happen, God says. God will not allow what's coming to go unnoticed by the people there. The earth shook. You want to get everybody's attention? Put a big light in the sky. 
except that didn't work for the blind. So have a trumpet sound, except that didn't work for those who are deaf. So what's God do? He shakes the whole earth. Everybody is awoken out of their slumber. Like a kid, God makes sure everybody's up early on Christmas, you know? Everybody woke up. For anybody who was paying attention, uh, creation was aware that something had happened. When Jesus was on the cross, the sky went dark for three hours. From noon to 3 p.m., it's dark. Everybody knew something was happening. When Jesus died, the earth shook, the temple, uh, the, the, on Mount Moriah, this big massive edifice to mankind's ability to build big stuff, the temple curtain rips from top to bottom, everything shakes. God's not letting these people wonder if they're doing something on the human level. He's ensuring that they know something on the divine level, level is happening. And then Jesus died after this earthquake and silence set in and silence covered the whole earth from that Sabbath Saturday, but it was broken on the morning of this resurrection Sunday. This wasn't merely a display of God's power. Instead, it was a call to attention for God's messenger. Middle of verse 2, why the earthquake? A causal conjunction, for. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came to the tomb. Put yourself in heaven on Good Friday. You can imagine the horror the angels endured on that Friday as Jesus was crucified, watching the eternal object of their worship be crushed by the forces of evil, the hands of obstinate and hate-filled mankind. They watched their king be murdered by the ones that he came to save, that he loved. They observed the injustice of the cross with minds untarnished by sin. They saw the chasm between the righteousness of the God-man and the sinfulness of His creation that He died to save. And the mercy of God held the angels of God away from the Son of God. The grace of God kept the angels of God from protecting the Son of God. The love of God detained the angels of God from saving the Son of God from the wrath of God. There in heaven on Friday, these perfect created beings watched. They were made to stand by as their king suffered and died for those who were rejecting him. Fast forward to Sunday morning. On the glory of a Sunday morning, the holiness of God and the justice of God have been satisfied by the sacrificed Son of God. And God's glory releases this messenger from heaven to come and proclaim what God has done on earth. And so the earth shook to announce the arrival of the angel of the Lord coming down from heaven. What did the angel come down from heaven to do? Middle of verse 2, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came down and rolled the stone back and sat on it. This is, this is vivid language. As if to say, in your face, Satan, this is divine smack talk if there ever was such a thing. First, the angels from heaven, and just a reminder, you got to come down from heaven. He condescended. He came down to lowly earth. And then he rolled back the stone. And you think, well, 
Is it like this big old stone that no man could roll? No, because man rolled it in there. I mean, I know you got this flannel graph image of your mind of this massive stone. That's probably not true. It's probably a pretty reasonably sized stone that men could roll fairly easily. Why? Because that's what you did to tombs. You rolled them open and you rolled them shut. So what's the significance about this angel rolling the stone away? If it's not so big, why the need for the guards? The guards were there exercising their human authority. Pick up at the end of chapter 27. Pilate, at the request of the Jews, he put a seal on the stone. He put guards at the tomb. Verse 63, the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they say, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise, therefore ordered the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away for he is, and say he has risen from the dead. Verse 65, Pilate did what they wanted. You see, the Gentiles and the Jews thought they could work together and keep the Messiah from saving the world. It didn't work. Well, maybe you think, why on earth would they not want Jesus to save the world? Why, why would they not want Jesus' message to be true? Why would they not want Jesus' message to be vindicated if he's going to save people? Well, it's, it's the exact same reason that apart from grace and faith, that you don't want saved. To be saved means you're helpless. To be saved means on your own you're hopeless. To be saved means you can't do it. Only Christ can. What the Jews and the Gentiles sought to reject, the angel affirmed when he rolled back the stone and he broke the seal on it. All of man's power and authority is hung up in this little seal. And the angel gets rid of it and sits on the stone. This, this tomb was the tomb of the Savior. This truly was God's Son. This was the long-awaited Messiah, and nothing on earth will ever be able to squelch that truth or say otherwise. The defense that man had set up against the plan of God, this stone with its seal representing power and authority of human likeness, the angel rolled back and sat on it. God has threatened mankind several times if we choose not to worship Him, that the stones will cry out. If you remember the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19, verse 40, the religious elite, they were all upset that Jesus was allowing people to worship him. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Friends, on the silence of this Sunday morning in Jerusalem, while there was still a chill in the air, this stone that was sealed and covered the entrance to Jesus' tomb cried out that he has risen when the angel rolled it away and sat on it. I don't know if any stone could ever preach a message like this stone preaches, a more glorious message than this stone that's rolled away from the tomb could preach. This stone is the illustration. The angel undeniably proclaims the conquering work of Christ, the authority of God to declare that his son is risen, that Jesus is no longer dead. If you were there, how would you respond to all this? How would you see this and take it in and how would you work through seeing this angel whose appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow? Verse 4, and for fear of the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. 
Now remember, these are Roman soldiers. The Romans weren't known for their ineptitude. They didn't build the largest empire the world had ever known up to that point via cowardice. The Roman cohort stationed in Jerusalem, they had already been embarrassed by Jesus as they sought to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane when they brought out their whole cohort and they say, where's Jesus? And are you Jesus? He says, I am the name of God. And they all fall down. Remember that? It's not a children's song. Like, that's what they did. They all fell down when they got up. I'm sure they were not happy with Jesus. That little bit of Christ's power that oozed out when he said his name caused themselves to find themselves in an unwilling state of temporal surrender, laying on the ground officially embarrassed by one guy. And so if you think it was hard to find some well-trained Roman soldiers to guard the tomb of Jesus, you'd be wrong. These soldiers would have been jumping at the chance to show their bravery in the face of any future conflict with anybody who followed Jesus. It's not hard to imagine these soldiers guarding the tomb were the toughest, the bravest, the rowdiest, the readiest, looking for a fight and a scuffle of of all the soldiers. That was these guys. And yet in the face of the white-hot, sinlessly perfect angel, the soldier's icy pride and stone-cold bravery melts away in fear. Their knees knocked and their hearts shriveled up into their souls until they gave up and they fainted on the ground under the weight of the angel's delegated authority who took their little seal and done with it. They're like playing possum on the ground. End of verse 4, they became like dead men. What a picture. The earth's most powerful. In a group, with a force at the ready, fall down and play dead at the sight of one of heaven's angels. That's about right. Here are the soldiers with the greatest machismo Rome has to offer, paralyzed by fear, in front of one of Satan's bellhops. Fear is a very appropriate reaction when we consider the story. The empty tomb, the messenger from heaven, the appearance of lightning, the white clothes, it's all terrifyingly supernatural. This is otherworldly. This is an evidence of the inexplicability of the resurrection. There is no natural explanation for Jesus' resurrection. This was not a resuscitation. This was not a swooning where he fainted on the cross and then somehow got better. That's ridiculous. This is a miracle of God and the resurrection of his son. And when you put the details of the story of the resurrection together, it doesn't matter who you are. It's going to cause fear because you start to understand Jesus is not like you. We don't run to people who've been resurrected. We don't know people who've been resurrected. This is otherworldly. This is supernatural. This is beyond us. I would suggest and guess before these soldiers wet their tunics, they realized that when the earth shook and the angel appeared and the stone was rolled away, they looked in and what they see? No body. He was gone. And so they respond in fear as they should, afraid of what they can't believe just happened. But they also respond in rejection and deception. And these three go hand in hand. Look down at verse 11. Fast forward for these guys to button up their reaction. They, they went into the city 
And they went to the chief priest. You might wonder, well, why wouldn't they go to their, you know, commander or whatever? Because they wanted to live. You, you didn't like fail miserably as a Roman soldier and keep being a Roman soldier. So they go to the chief priest and they kind of hope and maybe these religious people will give them some slack. So they go to the Jews who are afraid of the story getting out. And once the Jews and the religious leaders consulted the, and all the precincts reported, they decided to bribe the soldiers and mislead everyone. Politics hasn't changed much. 2,000 years, verse 13. Tell the people, and the sense of that is to keep on telling the people. Let's keep this lie going. His disciples came by night and stole them while he, we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll bribe him. We can speak Pilate's love language. We'll take care of him. So they took the money in verse 15, did what they were told. They were afraid of the resurrection, but then they decided the best answer was to reject it and deceive others into the same thing. You see, people fear the authority that the resurrection demands. Because if Jesus was resurrected, that means he is who he says he is. And you have to live how he, how he says you must live. They reject the simple reality that Christ's life and death and resurrection taught, and then they deceive others into the same lie. It happened on the first resurrection Sunday, and guess what? It's still happening today. Should we be surprised? No. But I wonder, is this how you respond to the risen Christ? Maybe you know in your heart that this is true, but you think it's okay for you to just kind of move on from it and live how you would like because of you want to live how you like. And you don't want to live how Jesus demands. The fact that Jesus claimed to be God, not of his love, died for you, and then because of his perfection was raised from the dead means that you can't do with him what you want. If it doesn't cause fear, you're not paying attention. And if that fear doesn't cause faith, then you reject it. And then you help others reject it and perpetuate the deception. That looks pretty kosher in our day. It's kind of a live and let live idea. It's, you know, oh, the whole Jesus thing, it's good for Christians. It's great for Russell Stover's candy. It's a big weekend for them. Don't worry about it, though, because some people need the crutch of religion, others don't. We can kind of do our own thing, live our own way. As long as we don't bother other people, it's fine. That's no different than the soldiers. They saw the truth of what Christ has done. They were afraid of it, so they rejected it and helped others by deceiving them as well. Jesus died on a cross. The king of creation who by his power and through his decree allowed the tree to grow that one day he would be killed on for your sin. That's who he was. Who are you? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in what he's done? Or are you on your own? You dismissed him? Rejected him? We can't see the work of Christ and dismiss him. Either Jesus and his followers are liars, or we're all crazy and none of this happened and we should be at home enjoying ourselves. Or Jesus is who he claims to be, the Lord, the King, the Savior, the Messiah, the risen Christ, and we should worship him. In these verses, the stones rolled away, the seals broken, the soldiers are paralyzed. But don't, don't miss the fact that it wasn't so that Jesus could come out. He was already gone. 
It's so that we could get in, so that we could see what God has done. The soldiers had opportunity to believe, and instead they rejected. What will you do? The second set of responses to the risen Christ in verses 5 to 8 is by our ladies, fear, joy, and obedience. You'll understand this, but just so we're clear, you don't want to respond as the soldiers did. You want to follow these women and their understanding of who the Savior is. Pick up their cause in verse 5. They've gotten up early, arrived at the tomb, either when the earthquake happened or as they were on the tomb, the earthquake happened. And, and after they see the seal on the tomb is broken and they see the soldiers laying down as if slain, uh, you can imagine there was an angel with the appearance of lightning and clothes white as snow, perfectly white. You can imagine this would have brought fear. And it's, it's not because the angel like was some fancy Chuck Norris guy in a divine robe and scared them. It was because they recognized there was something different than they were used to. Even though they followed Jesus around with all of his miracles, all of his supernaturalness, here was something beyond they'd ever experienced before. They were terrified. And the angel tells them appropriately, stop being afraid. Yes, like we read in John, there were more, there's at least one more angel there. Matthew only describes the one who's speaking. But these women are commanded to not be afraid. Christian, if you know who you are, we should all at times bear in our heart fear, understanding who Christ is and who we are and the gap between us, the chasm between his perfect righteousness and our sinfulness. How can we come to him without at times being afraid of him, this distance between the natural you and the supernatural him? If we're not feeling that distance, we're not understanding the truth of who he is. But notice the difference between the women and the soldiers and their fear. Soldiers were afraid of him. And the women were afraid of him. They both feared, but the soldiers were not comforted. The women were. The women had faith. Though weak and frail, their souls freshly battered by the difficulty of uh, the previous couple of days, Friday with Jesus crucified, Saturday with Jesus in a tomb dead, they supposed. They were afraid, but they were told not to fear. In their fear, they were told, you're here for this reason. This fear was not condemned. Instead, it was directed towards truth. The Bible has a lot to say about how we fear God. And three millennia ago was just as true when it came from Solomon as it is for us today. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What were the soldiers? Did they listen to the wisdom and instruction? Did they see and understand? No, they despised it, rejected it, and deceived through it. They didn't want the truth because that meant they needed a savior. They despised the wisdom and instruction of the cross and the empty tomb. And their fear would ultimately lead to their death. The ladies, they longed for the truth. They weren't worried about themselves. They wanted Christ. And so their fear gave way to following the truth. Notice the angel says in verse 5, I know you have uh, good motives. I know why you're here. I know you're here to serve the king, Jesus. And just so there's no confusement because the tomb's empty, we're still talking about the same Jesus, the one that was crucified. crucified. The angel labels Jesus as crucified. It's a very final word. 
There's words in our language that are meant to be final that aren't, like retirement. People retire multiple times, especially from football or whatever job. Retired people, they're like the busiest people ever because they don't retire. That's not crucified. Crucified is a final word. To be crucified is to be dead. Jesus was crucified. The angel affirms it. Jesus was dead. Jesus hung on a cross with nails stretching out his hands and keeping his feet nailed to that wood so that he could suffocate until he could no longer breathe and die. He was crucified. This crucifixion was carried out by professional executioners from Rome. The crucifixion was verified by professional soldiers, those who knew death when they saw it. Excuse me. But to ensure their success at the murder of their victim, they pierced his side just to make sure he was absolutely, fully, finally dead. He was crucified and then buried, put in a tomb. The angel says Jesus was dead. There was no life in him. The lamb has been slain. The sin bearer bore our sin until the wrath of God completed his fury and satisfied his vengeance upon this willing sacrifice who took our guilt and took our punishment. End of verse 5. Jesus was crucified. Jesus, though innocent, took the death sentence for his people, the, the sentence of death that we had earned. And he was put to death for us. Jesus was crucified. Synonymous for the death of a man on a cross, a cross of wood, Again, the angel says, don't, don't be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. Friend, if that's you, listen to the messenger sent from heaven. Don't be afraid. If you seek Jesus who was crucified, you don't need to worry about being crushed by God because of your sin. Instead, believe that God has crushed his son so that he could bring you to himself and coddle you as a loving father. God killed his son for your sins so that he could forgive you. God had Jesus crushed so that you could be saved. God sent his son to live on this earth and die the death that you deserve so that he could bring you to himself. The fear of the women is solved by the truth about Christ. He was surely crucified and he is surely not there because he's been resurrected. The beauty of the resurrection turns the horror of the cross into a hollowed place of God's divine mercy and grace. From raging wrath to the wonder of forgiveness, from death to the wonder of life. Verse 6, the angel says, he is not here. The tomb is empty. Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday are married together in a union that brings about our salvation. Good Friday without the resurrection is a tragedy. It's a terrible loss. It's an awful story of injustice and horror. Resurrection Sunday without the cross is a joke. It's a fairy tale. It's a feel-good story that doesn't feel good because there's nothing to it. The tomb, however, is empty. The angel says he is not here. The tomb's a picture of our captivity. The stone rolled away is a picture of our redemption. We're captive to death no longer because the stone's been rolled away and we've been set free. Death's house was securely keeping us. Jesus was supposedly a prisoner to death. But when the angel removed the stone, 
The truth is revealed. Jesus is not here. He is risen. The angel got rid of it. This thing that represented all of our death opened up. Eternal death no more. All the saints forevermore will pass through the tomb but never be held in it. Because in due time, as Jesus did, we shall rise again. Verse 6, he is not here, for he has risen as he said. Though he was surely dead, he is now absolutely alive. What just happened? Well, God tells us, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, in one of Peter's sermons about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter preaching says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and the signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In three verses, Peter tells us that God affirmed the life of Jesus, God planned the death of Jesus, and God brought about the resurrection of Jesus. The angel says it like this, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Remember, time and again, Jesus prophesied about his arrest and his betrayal and his being handed over to the people who were following him. For example, Mark chapter 9, verse 31 and 32, we read, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This is Jesus speaking, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Verse 32, but the disciples did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. The ladies didn't understand on the first resurrection Sunday until the angel explained, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. The fear of the women broke into joy and obedience as the, as the messenger informs their response. The angel in essence says, your doubt, your fear, it's all satisfied in this empty tomb. So, middle of verse 6, come on in, come, see the place where he lay. Then, go quickly and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. See, I have told you. There's some commands here that we need to consider. The angel demands the ladies value the evidence. He says, come. Don't worry about the Roman soldiers maybe waking up. Don't worry about the religious elite showing up. Just, just come on in. Come investigate this. Come see the claim of Christ. See. See what? See that Jesus was here. Remember, the ladies, they laid him there. They put him there. So see who this was. Who was he? Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's what they see in the empty tomb. What else should we see? We should see what Jesus did. In his resurrection is not normal. Instead, the tomb is all our shared identity. If we're not in Christ, we don't leave this tomb victorious. We all die. Most of us don't own tombs carved out of rock, but we're all going to die. Death is waiting on all of us. And yet right now, some of our caskets are on the showroom floor, waiting for our family to choose for us. Maybe the wood for your casket is being dried in the kiln. Maybe you're young and you think, you know what? Mine's still a tree. Yeah, well, one day it won't be. 
We all die. And when we die, what comes next? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, After death comes judgment. Jesus' judgment and his verdict was simple, innocent. His judgment was divine affirmation of a perfect life, and the result was a resurrection. And the angel says to the ladies, See, he's not here. See, see what you're not seeing? You're not seeing a body because the body is gone because he is risen. Death has been conquered. Then verse 7, the angel says, go tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. Come, see, go, tell. The fear of these women was in one sense put to rest because Jesus had conquered the grave. But the reality of a risen king filled their hearts with an awe that produced from them a righteous fear of God that resulted in action for God and obedience to God. Though Jesus is God, the definition of good, he is not common. He is not ordinary. He is not normal. He is not just like us. He's not your homeboy. His glory is not safe. But because he loves us, we're safe in him. We know that the Lamb of God, the risen Christ, is for us. So there's nothing that can be against us. And that safety breaks over our soul like a wave on the beach and the wetness saturates our heart in joy. That same God-man who's worthy of our fear and who's not common but treats us as precious, how could that not bring about within us a joy that's everlasting? These ladies began to experience it and it led to their obedience. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear and joy and ran to tell his disciples. The ladies pursuing obedience find themselves on the way to do what the angel commanded, and we see them meet the risen Christ face to face. Brings about the third set of responses, fear, action, and worship. Notice verse 9, Matthew begins again, behold. I think this was just as surprising as Matthew as it, to, to Matthew as it should be to us, that Jesus would die for his people and then seek out his people so that they could know him and be loved by him. The living Christ, murdered by those he came to save, goes to find those who love him. I wonder if you think your sin is too much. It's not. Maybe you think there's nothing in you to love. You'd be wrong. Jesus has died for your sin and been risen from the dead and is with his Father, wishing that none should perish, but that all would come to him and have eternal life. What a God who would be put on a cross for his creation and then pursue his creation. Matthew says, behold, like, can you believe this? Can you believe the passion our king has for us? Imagine other religions put man on a pilgrimage. Go do this, find this, seek this, climb this mountain, walk this wall, whatever. God comes to us. Friend, he offers himself to you this morning. He's not afraid of your sin. He's not concerned with your circumstances. And he offers you eternal life, not a better life on this earth. In fact, he promises difficulty and struggle and even persecution in this life. If, if you're afraid, you can have the risen Christ. If you're sad, you can have the risen Christ. If you're hurting, you can have the risen Christ. If you're alone, you don't need to be. You can have the risen Christ. Imagine these ladies they go from thinking Jesus is dead and all the incumbent problems that they had there, then all of a sudden Jesus is alive. That doesn't make all their problems go away. In fact, that makes them worse. 
They were still poor women with a past known to be sinful and connections to what Rome considered a criminal deserving of death and the religious elite around them deserving of death because he was a heretic. And these ladies' earthly lives would be easier if Jesus was out of the picture. But here he is, and he's all theirs, and they worship him. Behold, Jesus says to the ladies, and what did they do? Well, they were still afraid. By the end of verse 9, they worshiped Jesus. When you understand who you are, fallen humanity, you understand who he is, the God-man who came to live the life you couldn't, die the death you deserve, and wants you to be in him, what do you want to do but worship him? They fought their fear, overcame their traditions, pursued God in the face of an opposing world. They worshiped him. Jesus says again, don't be afraid. Why? Friends, because of Good Friday, you can look back and not be afraid. Because of Easter, you can look forward and not be afraid. There's nothing in this life that should bring you fear. There's not one person who should be afraid if they're in Christ. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he says, you're mine if you're in him. He's the Son of Man prophesied of old, the Son of God who has come at his first advent to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. But he'll come again as a second advent, no longer riding a donkey, an animal of peace, but a white horse, an animal of war, swinging a sword that conquers and judges. And on his thigh, there's a tattoo that proclaims his glory and his robe is dipped in the blood of all those who stand against him. Don't trifle with the risen Christ. He is, Colossians 1.15 told us, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross, the risen Christ offers life to you. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This risen Christ offers life to you. Will you believe? Will you believe your sins were so bad that you needed saved? Will you believe that he is so glorious he did everything on your behalf? Will you believe that he has risen from the dead and because he lives, you can have life? Will you believe that there is no hope outside of him? Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What's the point? Friends, we're all going to be resurrected. Jesus says in John 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Bible is crystal clear. We will all die, and we will all be raised. And you say, well, I don't know about that, preacher. I don't really believe in the resurrection. Okay? The resurrection is like gravity. Go out on your roof this afternoon, jump off saying, I don't believe in gravity, you'll still end up in the ER. The resurrection is coming for all of us. And those who believe in him will not be put to shame. Why? Because he has taken our shame on himself, suffered on the cross because of our sin, died the death that we had earned and has risen so that we can have life. Will you worship him?
Will you surrender the control of your life to him? Will you put your faith only and always just in him? Will you believe that Jesus is Lord? Will you believe that God raised him from the dead? If you will, you'll be saved. Take Christ at his word. He is worthy of all our hope and able to save us unto eternal life. Let's pray. Father, what a savior you've given us. What a hope you've shown us in the story of the resurrection. We ask you to cause our hearts to believe. If we doubt, if we're like Thomas, help us. Give us faith. We realize it can only come from you. Help us. We need it. Our Savior is too glorious for us to live in some sort of loitering limbo. Cause us to be passionate about living for him, obedient to him. Help us. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.